This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, most of you probably know that Groundhog Day is February 2. Well, we do too. But what we didn't realize is that February 2, February 2nd, is the day before Super Bowl 53, which means it's the day we decide the Hall of Fame's class of 2019. Now, I know Groundhog Day has particular relevance for the Super Bowl. What with the Patriots making, what is that, Ron, their 33rd appearance in the last 35 years? Anyway. <laughs> but what does it mean for the Hall of Fame voting? Uh, Goose, Ron, Ron, I'll ask you. Another rush of first ballot choices? Uh, God, let's hope not. Uh, uh but uh, one hopes last year was a momentary uh, memory lapse on the part of some of our younger voters that does not continue with another coronation. I hope. First ballot? Are you kidding? If this committee could, they would enshrine both Brady and Belichick that week. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I'll go for that. I'll, I'll, I'll second that. Hey, uh, Ron, if, if Puxatawney Phil sees his shadow... February 2. What does it mean for you? Because, after all, you're presenting two finalists. That'd be Ty Law and Richard Seymour. Well, hopefully it doesn't mean that Law continues to be ill-treated by some of our peers on the committee. Uh, it's amazing. 47 guys come up to me uh, the last uh, three years in a row and tell me, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. Well, why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the other way to look at it is uh, uh, in honor of the Pats Rams replaying Super Bowl 36, they, the voters put in two of that game's greatest players and most impact players, Law and Seymour both. Yeah, okay, well. That'd be great. We don't have long to find out, and, and when we do, of course, we'll discover what it means for 13 others, including former Raiders coach and quarterback Tom Flores. Now, Raiders owner Mark Davis is going to join us to talk about Tom's chances, and in turn, he will be joined by 2019 College Hall of Fame inductee, that'd be Lawrence, Lorenzo White. We're also going to hear or look back on the career of the late Bob Kuchenberg, examine the Hall of Fame class of 2019 finalists, and hear from Fox Rules analyst Mike Pereira, back by popular demand, to tell us how to fix a system that went terribly wrong this past weekend in New Orleans. And Gooseman, how would you fix it? Eliminate instant replay. It was designed to fix the egregious error. The non-pass interference penalty was as egregious an error as you're going to see. If replay can't fix that, what's the purpose of having replay? I don't know. Well, we'll said. Mike about it. Yeah, we're going to ask Mike about it. We'll ask him about what the Gooseman says, and we won't have long to find out what he's going to say. He's coming up after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. I want to get to the late and great Bob Kuchenberg, guys. Uh, but before we do, I'd also like to ask you about your thoughts on NFL officiating after what we just witnessed this past weekend. Um, I guess I'm going to ask you how you would change it to correct what really was a nightmare of New Orleans and, and what consequences, Goose, should there be for an officiating crew that really is no stranger to controversy, certainly an, a, a referee who's no stranger to controversy, that's Bill Vinovich. Well, if you start suspending officials for blown calls, you'll have 15 or 20 officials sitting every week during the regular season. <laughs> now, this was a much higher profile error, and right. I believe in that particular play, that was the field judge's call or non-call. It was human error. Just like Tom Brady throwing an interception from the one-yard line, human errors are a part of football. Is anyone calling for Tom Brady to be fined, suspended, or fired? 
except they set the precedent goose during the season. They fired a line judge for blowing a false start in the Chargers-Cleveland game. They fired him. Then fire him. Right. right. Ron? Yeah, what well, uh, yeah, as it turns out, in that particular case, it, it was the down judge who blew the call. And I just saw recently, just uh, uh, a little bit ago, uh, a, a sort of a new angle on the thing where the guy starts to reach in for the flag. You can see him do it. And then he waves it waves it off, and the side judge comes in to talk to him as, as Sean Payton is charging down, uh, screaming his head off, and the side judge sort of waves him off, and you can see him because the down judge is facing uh, the camera, and he says to the field judge, bang, bang. And I'm yeah. thinking to myself, bang, bang, yeah. He banged him in the friggin' head, and, and then the ball banged on the ground well after that, but... That was his response, bang, bang. And, and, and so you end up with this kind of call. To me, uh, and I know this is, sounds kind of harsh, and I, as you guys know and love me, I'm not harsh by nature, but you, huh? you blow a call that badly, yeah, yeah. and your conclusion is bang, bang, play. You, yeah. can't, you can't hold this job. Well, and Ron, Bill Vinovich was the referee in that right. Steelers-Chargers game in Pittsburgh, December 2nd, that absolutely cost the Steelers probably, I mean, it cost them the game, but probably the playoffs. And, and I guess my question is, I understand, you know, part of that crew is different. I understand that. But how does Bill Vinovich get to officiate a conference championship game? And what does that say about the rest of the league's referees? I mean, I understand they say, okay, we're going to put our best out there. So that means he's one of your best referees. Well, what does that say about the rest of the league's refs? I mean, he had nothing to say after the game. Nothing. Well, uh, uh, not only that, uh, again, uh, rewatching the, the video of the play, you can see uh, 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 Vinovich up there looking straight down the field at the play. So after the game, he said he didn't see it. What do you mean he didn't? if you didn't see it, and you, I can see you in the video looking dead at the play, then you are blind, my friend. And you cannot be a referee if you are blind. I'm sorry. This is not blind football. It's you know, you got to have eyesight. I mean, he's looking dead at the play, and after... Uh, when the pool reporter went in, his first thing, thing that he said was, you know, what punches pilot, you know, I didn't see the play. Right. You didn't see the play? Really? <laughs> so, you know. Bill, Bill Vinovich, his, his crew called the fewest penalties in the NFL last season. I think that's one of the reasons he's there. So are we surprised there was no flag in that yeah, one? I was going right. to say. Right. <laughs> yeah, should have called I mean, one guy, more in that game. Yeah, I mean, the guy anyway. committed two penalties because yeah. he hit right. him in the head. Yeah, that's too. right. Helmet to helmet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, anyway, we're going to hear more on that from former NFL officiating chief Mike Pereira, who's now the Fox Rules analyst. But but I want to get to former offensive lineman Bob Kuchenberg, guys, uh, who passed away a couple weeks ago at the age of 71. Uh, I really wanted to talk to him quickly, uh, about him quickly. Um, Bob was a six-time Pro Bowl, as you know, three-time All-Pro, two-time Super Bowl champ. He was also a nine-time Hall of Fame finalist. But, Goose, he's never been inducted. You've been in that room for over 20 years. Why? Well, probably because he was the last to retire. Larry Little was the other guard in that Miami line. He retired first. He was enshrined. Jim Langer was a center. He retired second. He was enshrined. When Kuchenberg retired, I think the voters probably figured, well, two blockers off from one liner enough. Yeah. It was the final day consecutive years. One day he disappeared from the ballot. Had he retired first, I'm guessing he would have had a bust in Canton already. Well, there's a pretty poignant response to his passing from Don Shuler, who, of course, coached Cooch in Miami. Basically, he said he was one of the greatest players ever coached and is more than deserved in being Canton. So I'm going to ask you guys straight up. Ron, I'll start with a straightforward question. Does Bob Cooch belong in the Hall of Fame? 
Yes, he does. He, uh, look, as good as Larry Little and and even Dwight Stevenson and Jim Langer were, Kuchiberg, to me, was the greatest lineman the, the Dolphins ever had. Uh, and I saw all those guys play a lot. And I also saw Rich and Webb play a lot. Uh, uh, you know, if you're an all-pro player, regardless of what position they stick you in, which is basically what Kuchiberg became at various times in his career, uh, you look like a Hall of Famer to me. And uh, I don't... I don't get it, but uh, it's going to be tough for him now. You know, I go back to what Chula said about Kuchin a few years back. Quote, Bob Kuchenberg did more to help my team win than any player I ever coached, unquote. This from a guy who coached Hall of Famers Johnny Unitas, Raymond Berry, Lenny Moore, Jim Parker, Bob Greasy, Larry Zonka, Paul Warfield, and Dan Marino. I think that about covers it. Well, Gooseman, you presented senior candidate Jerry Kramer last year after he'd been passed over. Ten times, but you were so persuasive that this time, at least, he had no trouble getting into Canton. Could you see the same thing happening to Bob Kuchenberg, especially now that his passing has brought out supporters? Yeah, I would hope one day we could resurrect his candidacy, and I hope I could present him. But, you know, like Les Richter and Ken Saylor, we're already a year too late. You know, every franchise has at least one player who belongs in the Hall of Fame but isn't in. That's 32 great candidates right there. It's it's tough. They're, they're so competitive. I'm not sure Kuchenberg ever comes out. Goose, one last question. If you had to present, Cooch, to voters today, and you might have to one day, what would you say to convince the selectors to support him, as you did with Jerry Kramer? I think the key is, and Ron touched on it, in 78, they moved him out to left tackle. And he went to the Pro Bowl as a left tackle. I mean, he was a great blocker and a versatile blocker. And in my, if I had to present him, he'd be very heavy on Don Chula references. Okay, well, there's the signal that we're about to hear about someone else who is Hall of Fame worthy. And that's someone who's former tight end and 2019 finalist, Tony Gonzalez, whom our Rick Goslin wrote about this week, on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com or the maven.io slash talkoffame. And Gooseman, I think this should be a pretty easy one, right? Yeah, question is, is Tony Gonzalez the greatest tight end ever to play in the NFL? There were eight tight ends in Shrine and Canton. The shortest wait for induction of any of the eight was three years by Shannon Sharp and Kellen Winslow. Mike Ditka, who was voted to the NFL's 75th anniversary team, was elected in his 11th year. John Mackey was voted to the NFL's 50th anniversary team, was elected in his 15th year. Now, Gonzalez is in his first year of eligibility and has one of the strongest resumes among the 15 modern era finalists for the class of 2019. He's the NFL's second all-time leading receiver. Only first ballot Hall of Famer Jerry Rice quote more passes in his career. If the Hall of Fame selectively deems Gonzalez the only tight end ever worthy of first ballot election, it will be a powerful endorsement of Gonzalez as the greatest player at his position in NFL history. But is he? It's hard to argue he's not in the, if you base your conclusion on his receiving stats. His 1,300 receptions ranks second only to the 1,500 of Rice. He's one of 10 players and one of only two tight ends with 100 career touchdown receptions. His 111 ranks second at his position to Antonio Gates, who is still active with 116. Gonzalez converted his receptions at 15,000 yards, sixth most in NFL history. He's the only tight end in the top 20. His 14 Pro Bowl stand is another record for tight ends. But the, but the position has evolved. Ditka and Mackey played during an era when the tight end spent more time blocking than catching. Gonzalez played in an era when tight ends were on the field for their receiving ability. Once upon a time, the tight end was considered a third tackle. His job was to block. Now he's considered a third or fourth receiver. His job is to catch. The Hall of Fame won't wait as long for the catchers in today's game as it did for the blockers in the game of yesteryear. Tony Gonzalez will want to have his own bus in Canton, but will he be first ballot? If so, he'll move to the top of the queue among tight ends. Well, Goose, uh, 
Will Tony Gonzalez be first ballot and considered among the all-time best if he was being judged as a wide receiver, which in my mind is really what he was? I probably feel better about him as a first ballot candidate as a receiver than a tight end because that's how we judge wideouts, catching footballs. I've stated this before, but I think we should eliminate the tight end designation and jump, just lump all these guys as receivers because that's what they are. Blocking isn't going to get Heinz Ward into the Hall of Fame, and it's not going to keep Tony Gonzalez out of the Hall of Fame. Goose, another tight end who is in the Hall of Fame who was a receiver was Kellen Winslow. Kellen Winslow or Tony Gonzalez? Whew. I'd say Winslow. Okay, so would I. Thanks for that, Goose Man. Uh, we're going to hear more on the Hall's Class of 2019 in the second hour. But first, yeah, first, we're going to take a break. Up next, it's Mike Pereira. You don't want to hear him. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, two or three times a year, we're visited by one of our favorite guests, and that would be Fox Rules analyst Mike Pereira. And in light of what happened last weekend in New Orleans, we wanted to get Mike's take on the current state of officiating. Mike, welcome back, and good to see you survived New Orleans. And first of all... I understand, before we get to the questions about that game, I understand you're going to be back on the field Super Bowl weekend. I wish you were back on the field last weekend in New Orleans, frankly. But I understand you're going to be back on the field officiating Super Bowl weekend on February 2nd doing the three-piece-suit football game. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, it's a, I'm going back, baby. I can't think of a better uh, reason to. It's a game played by guys and women that play in three-piece suits, and they raise money for veteran charities. It's uh, The money this year from a raffle is going to Pets for Vets and to our own foundation, Battlefields to Fields. So I will be there in a three-piece suit trying to call past interference, but I may fail like others have most recently. I don't know. <laughs> sounds like a great cause. Thanks. That's, that sounds like a terrific deal. Um, anyway, let's get to... Uh, the Saints game from last weekend, because a lot of people want to know about that. Uh, you were there. We all know about the nine call, non-call on a, frankly, blatant pass interference. How does an official miss something like that? you ever been involved in anything like that? And how does this official miss something like that? Well, unfortunately, I have, um, but not at a big point of the game like that. My one playoff game that I worked in, 97, the Broncos at the Chiefs, um, first quarter. I mean, I, I, I was when you work in the playoffs, there's so much more pressure, and simple down and up, receiver got chucked out of bounds, 10 yards downfield, quarterback in the pocket, and I just froze. I swallowed the olive. I choked. It was miserable. And, um, you know, and I've lived with that ever since. And you could ask me right now, what was the best call I ever made? And I wouldn't have any idea. Ask me what my worst was. And this is it. And this will live with these officials forever. I just think they got dragged down by a subconscious feeling of you don't want to be a part of the story. And, you know, maybe in the playoffs, even though they're not told, let's not be technical. Let's get the big ones. And, and I think they got a little too comfy in the lazy boy chair and when the big play came they didn't react and um and and that's a shame because it wasn't one of those bang bang ones that you can understand how they would miss it this this is one that three guys looked at and decided not to throw so complacency complacency may have set in um and it sure reared its ugly head i think that anybody involved in officiating now is responsible um i would have felt that way if it was me still running it what did i do wrong that uh, could lead to a miss being 
this dramatic at this point of the game, and a lot of introspections has to be going on, um, but it happened, and you can't go back and correct it. Lawsuits are not going to be heard, and Commissioner Goodell's not going to overturn it, so now the most significant question is, what do we do going forward? Well, well that's what I want to ask you about, because as you know, early this season, in a Chargers game, the league fired an official for missing a false start. Russell Okung, left tackle, false started. They didn't call it, throws a touchdown pass. He got fired. What should the consequences be here? Well, he got fired because of six weeks' performance that were that was apparently, and I don't have all the grades, but uh, apparently his performance over six weeks was bad, and that last false start kind of, that's what led to the dismissal. Um, I didn't like it then, and I, I mean, you look at this now, you look at these officials, um, two in the primary position, do you look at them and say, you know, should we fire them? Hey, these are seasoned officials, great officials, um, whose body of work was judged over 15 games in the regular season to get them to work either the Super Bowl in Tier 1, they could have worked the Super Bowl or the championship games. So these are really good officials who made a judgment mistake. Now, how that got into their psyche, I'm not sure, but it is a judgment mistake. So do you fire them? Do you fire two good officials and bring in two that aren't ready to go and make your overall program worse? Um, do you suspend them and then get them to the point where they figure that they better call you know, every ticky-tack foul there is because they'll be afraid of getting fired over one miss? Um, look at the – what do you do with D Ford, you know, with Kansas City? He made a big mistake. He lined up clearly offside, took away the interception, and a win from Kansas City. Do you fire him? I mean, mistakes are made, and and these officials will live with this for a long time, and that certainly does not help anybody in New Orleans. Um, no fan, no player, no coach, Gail Benson, who I thought handled her statement appropriately. Um, I, that's not going to make anybody feel any better, but these guys are really hurting and are going to live with this. They'll still be officiating next year, I promise you that and they should be, but they're going to have a hard time living this one down personally. Mike, how would you have handled this if you were still running the league's officiating department? You mean in the immediate aftermath? Yep, yep, that night. Well, I probably would have done the same thing. I mean, I valued my relationships with coaches, and, um, you know, I, I... Probably would have reached out myself. I don't know who called first, if Sean called first or Al called first. But, you know, the conversations that you have with coaches are supposed to be confidential. And I probably would have reached out myself. I mean, I, I did that. I mean, I, I never had a mistake of this big a magnitude on this big of stage. But I, I reached out to address it first. And instead of, you know, waiting for them to address me, there's there's a, the side of being proactive and addressing the issue right away so i don't i don't have any fault with that i mean it's a miss and people are talking about now should the league you know put out a public you know apology or public statement hell it's already out there i mean everybody knows the seventy thousand people that were in new orleans knew you know when it when it happened so i don't know what's even to be gained necessarily to make a public statement. I, I think more so I'm more interested to see 
if the league will just kind of dissect this thing and get rid of some of the traditions and some of the things that are always said, you know, you can't make pass interference reviewable. Well, you can make pass interference reviewable. Let's get over this. We can't, we can't, we can't. And, you know, I've said all day long today that technology has improved at a much greater pace than officiating. And that's just, that's just the facts. And so is it time to open up the door a little bit more and let technology get a little bit more involved because you cannot have this mistake again. And I don't necessarily want to overreact to one mistake, but there was a lot of mistakes during the course of the season, which I think could be easily um, fixed. And I'm, I'm sitting, you know, in my chair right now and I've been working through it all last night and all today. I'm for the eighth official, Adam. He's not a replay official. He's called a sky judge. He's in a booth with replay equipment. He can take an immediate look at a play as soon as it's over. And if he sees on TV that they've got the angle and definitively the call should have been made or shouldn't have been made, he could talk immediately to the referee. It'll take 15 seconds. You could have corrected that missed pass interference call in 15 seconds. You could have corrected the missed roughing the passer call or the call that was made on the Tom Brady hit, you could have corrected that in, in 15 seconds. And to me, I think it's time to use technology to change things and correct things in real time, not in three-minute reviews. You know, let that go the way it is with with uh, turnovers and scoring plays, but take the personal fouls and the pass interference calls and the obvious misses and correct them. You could do it quickly with a member of the crew. It's done on-site, not in New York. That's where I'm leaning now. Whether the helmet-to-helmet call, uh, you know, early in the year, you were getting flagged just for putting your helmet on when you came out of the locker room. And, and lately, it seems like you can take it off and bludgeon some guy, uh, and, and they don't make a call. I mean, the New Orleans game, there was uh, not only could you flag the guy for pass interference, you could have flagged him for helmet to helmet contact, and instead he gets flagged for nothing. Uh, doesn't it kind of make a mockery of the whole thing in the public's eye, uh, Mike? Well, I don't know that it makes a mockery of it, but it does show the inconsistency of it. You know, what they did at the first of the season and the preseason, the first two weeks, they just made a point. I mean, you know, I I mean, in my entire 12 years I was in the league office, you know, people came to me, you know, oh, my God, you're calling a lot of uh, you're calling a lot of illegal formation penalties here. I mean, this is a point of emphasis of the tackle being up in the line of scrimmage. And, and I would say yes. And they'd say, are you going to let up once the season starts, you know, or are you just trying to make a point? And I said, no, we're going to stay with this until they line up perfectly legally. Well, I was such a big liar. I was just, I was making a point. I was I was having the officials make a point so that at least, at least we could get them lined up closer. But I, I, I do think that, you know, again, when it comes to player safety, I, I think it's been really hard on the officials, you know, calling this illegal use of the helmet and even some of these hits on defenseless players. And that's another one that I think should be the eighth official. The sky judge should have the ability to call down there and say, hey, that was an illegal use of helmet shot at the 32-yard line. That's the dead ball spot at 15, announced the penalty, let's go. Or that was not a foul. He he didn't lower his head. It was it was the side of the helmet. Let's pick, I, I, think, I think we can do so much better, but I, I, I can't. I mean, I, I just can't 
I can't listen to um, a John Elway or even a Stephen Jones going into a competition committee meeting like they have said, well, we can't make pass interference reviewable. Well, there's other ways to go about it. There's other ways to go about it. So don't go in saying, I can't, you know, go in, go in saying, let's look at kind of redoing everything and taking a different approach. And um, I'm, I'm sticking by what I think is the right move. I'd like to see the league try it in all 64 preseason games. And if that sky judge works to analyze all of the, uh, of the games, if it works, then bring it in for the playoffs in 2019. And if it works there, then bring it in for the regular season at 2020. Find out what the unintended consequences are. But to me, to me, something's got to be done. I mean, there's there's too many ways that you can make things better. Is it going to extend the length of game? Sure, maybe some. But that eighth official could correct six things in the time that replay takes to correct one. And so uh, it may lead to less challenges even. Um, so I, I, please don't tell me you can't do it. Please don't go into a meeting and tell me that you can't do it without exploring, you know, a different way to do things. And if the games last three hours and 15 minutes as opposed to 307, God, the world's not going to come to an end. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for the time. And we'll see you in Atlanta, though I'm going to guarantee you, you will not see us in our three-piece suits. You really won't? Oh, man. <laughs> no, no. I, I got a few extra. No I can loan you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think Ron's going to rent his, but it has to be back by that day, so you won't exactly. see us. <laughs> hey, thanks, Mike. All right, guys. See you. That was Fox Rules analyst Mike Pereira. Up next, the Traders owner, Mark Davis. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, one of the surprise finalists in this year's Hall of Fame class is former Raiders quarterback and coach Tom Flores, who is making his first, yes, first appearance as a finalist the age of 81 or 48 years after retiring as a player. Now, there are a lot of people in Raider Nation pulling for him, including our own black and silver Ron Borges, as well as Raiders owner Mark Davis, who joins us now to talk about Tom and maybe, just maybe, a few others. Mark, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Well, Mark, I don't know if you remember, three years ago... I had just come out of the Hall of Fame vote in San Francisco, and I was late for dinner, but I got there. It was a North Beach restaurant in San Francisco, and I ran into you as you were leaving, and I introduced myself to you, and I said, hey, Mark, guess what? Ray Guy's in. Ray Guy's in. And I'll never forget what you said to me at that time. That's great. But now we have a couple others that we need to address, too. And one of them was Tom Flores. So if you can, give us the Cliff Notes version of why you believe Tom Flores belongs in Canton. Okay. Well, today is January 22nd. Um, It is the anniversary, 35th anniversary of the Raiders beating the Washington Redskins in uh, Super Bowl eighteen. And Tom Flores was the uh, coach of that football team. And it was not his 
first endeavor into the uh, into the uh, Super Bowl um, as a coach and as a player. Uh, Tom Tom Flores uh, participated in uh, I would say six, five, six, five or six Super Bowls. I think it's five, um, but he's won four. And with the Kansas City Chiefs as a player, with the Oakland Raiders as an assistant coach, and with the Oakland Raiders as uh, twice as a head coach. And uh, throughout the years, he was a player in the American Football League um, as a quarterback, helped to develop what was then termed to be the uh, vertical game with the Raiders. And uh, I think all his qualifications are, you know, just out there to be known. You say it's a, a surprise that he's there. Uh, as a finalist, I say it's not a surprise, but it's overdue, and I believe he deserves it. Okay, let me ask you this, since you mentioned that being overdue. Are you surprised that it's this overdue? It took him this long to get acknowledged, and why? Why do you think that it's now that he's getting acknowledged? I, you know, I can't, I can't answer that question. Um, I think Ron, Ron might be able to help. Ron Borges might be able to help with that. Um, being part of the uh, voting group that does it, um, I would defer to you guys to let me know. <laughs> We've been trying to figure it out too, Mark. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, one of the things about Tom that always strikes me is that that he people seem to forget what a pioneer he was. Uh, you know, as a Hispanic American, first quarterback, first head coach, first to win the Super Bowl, and, and it seems like people forgot that. Uh, are you saying first what? As the first Hispanic American, he was the first uh, ever to be a starting quarterback in pro football as an Hispanic American, first Hispanic American head coach, and the first minority of any sort to win the Super Bowl. And it seems like everybody forgot that sort of trailblazer side of his resume. I understand that, and I don't know. I don't know if those are the things that get you into the Hall of Fame, as far as you know, being a trailblazer as a as a ethnic type of thing or whatever, but he certainly does represent a large portion of the American uh, population. Uh, Mark, Tom's one of five coaches who won two Super Bowls yet haven't been enshrined yet. Why should Tom jump the queue on someone like Jimmy Johnson or George Seifert? Um, I don't know that he should uh, jump the queue. Um, but as I said, he's done some other things as well as just win two Super Bowls as, as the head coach. He also won one, as I said, as an assistant coach, and he also won one as a backup quarterback with the Kansas City Chiefs. And those are the things that I think, you know, his, his whole resume is what I look at as well as just the uh, two Super Bowls as a head coach. Um, as the Raiders uh, wide receiver coach in uh, the 76 Super Bowl, he had Cliff Branch. He had uh, uh, Fred Blitnikoff as, as the receivers coach. He, he coached those guys. Those guys have Hall of Fame credentials as well. And so he's touched a lot of people as well throughout his thing. So I'm not I'm not denigrating any of the others, but I think... What Tom has done in the overall resume is pretty much untouchable. 
Mark Ron said he could coach Branch and Blitnikoff. If <laughs> <laughs> Branch said, run fast, we'll throw you the ball. <laughs> well, you know what? But could he catch it? <laughs> yeah, someone had to teach him. Wow, you're right. <laughs> Somebody had to teach him how to catch it, and, and Tom did a hell of a job of that because, you, as you said, we were going to talk about others that should be in, and Cliff is absolutely one of them. But uh, he had to learn his trade, and Tom helped him teach that. Now, Fred, I'll give you a different story on that. So, I mean, Fred, <laughs> he... Uh, you just had to keep him on the field. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> and keep him supplied with cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Mark, you've been around Tom a long time. What, what's his greatest strength? What, 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 hit, what strength made him a great head coach? You know, it's a good question. I, th- I think it was his measured approach to everything. Um, he wasn't too high, and he wasn't too low. He was able to keep it. It was a wild group of guys that he was coaching. Um, you know, he coached with uh, Coach Madden, obviously, as, as Coach Madden's assistant coach, and uh, kept the wide receivers in line. But then when he took over the uh, as the head coach, it was a wild group. And uh, he was able to take all those different personalities and get them together on Sunday afternoons and dominate. Well, you know, Mark. Uh, so I would go. I would go with his measured approach. <laughs> well, as you know, Mark, you and you and I both go back a long way with the uh, with the Raiders, and I was around all those great teams you were just talking about. And I've always sort of had uh, two pet peeves when it comes to missing guys in the Hall of Fame, and I know uh, one of them is uh, very close to you, Cliff Branch. Um, so let's start with Cliff. I mean, you were once his agent, I believe, to a, to a great extent. I always wanted to pay money to be in a room with, with you and your dad arguing over Cliff would have been great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what did he mean to the Raiders' offense and to Belidnikov and, and Casper? Well, I'll tell you, with Cliff, the best people to talk to are the guys that had to cover him. And the, and the coordinators that had to scheme for him. Um, you don't know how many times before a game, the coordinator or whatever would just kind of saunter over because I knew a lot of the guys, and they say, "How's Cliff doing? Is, is, how's his hamstring? How's he doing?" They had every every defensive coordinator had to scheme for Cliff Branch. Um, I think the closest thing I've seen to Cliff is uh, this kid Tyreek Hill. With Kansas City, yep, and you see how he opens up the whole field for everybody else. You have to be aware of it. He puts the fear of God in people, and Cliff was the first to actually really be able to do that. Bob Hayes did a good job, but Cliff really was a true receiver. He learned to run the routes again. Tom helped him learn to run routes, but so did Freddie Bolitnikoff. And once Cliff put on a little bit of weight. He had such powerful legs, and he had that second and third gear to go after the deep ball. There's never been anybody like him. There really hasn't. Um, he dominated the field. He opened up so many different things for all the other players, for the tight ends uh, and the seams and everything else. It just He was a one-of-a-kind player, and I think he deserves his due, and I hope he's going to get it soon. 
The other guy whose name comes up, it has come up uh, many times, but he hasn't gotten in yet, uh, which also is baffling to me. And I got a full disclosure. I got to say he was, uh, uh, he and I were good friends when I was out there to the point where uh, many times to amuse himself, he would stick to me after a game and ruin whatever clothes I was wearing for the day. But that's, of course, Lester Hayes. Uh, You know, in 1980, he was Defensive Player of the Year. He made 18 picks that season, including five in the playoffs. He was a five-time Pro Bowler, a 1980s All-Decade team. Um, What do you think about Lester? I mean, for a while there, people said that he and Mike Haynes made the greatest secondary or cornerback tandem uh, in pro football. Is he a Hall of Famer in your mind, Mark? Yes, he is. Yes, Lester Hayes is, absolutely, in my mind. There's no question. Again, you go back to uh, January 22nd, Super Bowl 18. They call that running with a knight. But you look at him and Mike Haynes lining up in the face of those Smurfs and how they dominated that game. Um, I doubt you'll see anything like it. Um, you know, the rules are changed now, and, you know, it's the five-yard bump and all that stuff and everything. But those guys played one-on-one, man-on-man, with no fear. And Lester, Lester had the speed. He had the agility. And you, if you saw how he lined up on the receiver, he could almost uh, squat to his butt hits the ground. Yeah. He was that flexible. And he had the hips to turn and run. Um, I hope one day he gets his due. He definitely deserves it. Um, you see other people going in, and you just kind of wonder. It's it's hard, you know, to get everybody in. And, of course, we're prejudiced. Raiders. You know, we want all Raiders in there. <laughs> but I've seen all these guys come through, and I've seen all the guys from the other teams that have played. And I definitely believe that, that Lester's one of them that, that deserves to be up there at the top. You're in the right company, Mark, because Ron wants all the Raiders in there, too. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, but the one <laughs> are definitely deserving of, the, of that type of uh, recognition. There's no question in my mind. Mark, I, I want to go back to Tom Flores because he's the candidate we're going to discuss in, in about a week and yep. a half. What's your best Tom Flores story? Do you have a favorite memory of Tom? If I asked you, what's your favorite story, your favorite memory of him, what would it be? God, that's hard to say. You know, I, I, it's, it's almost like if, if you ask somebody, of your, how your, one of your family members, you know, your best memory of that. I don't know. I've got so many of them. I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't know where to start. Could you give me one? Um, I enjoy seeing Tom down in Palm Desert and having dinner. Um, <laughs> um, he, you know, he's family. And he's Raider family, and he bleeds silver and black. That's what I remember on Tom. Mark, do you think the fact he went to Seattle and didn't, didn't succeed there has hurt him? I hope not. I hope not. I don't. I don't believe that that would be the case. I mean, I'm not. He's not getting voted in the Hall of Fame for being a general manager. Right. Good point. Good point. Mark, thanks so much for the yep. time, and and good luck in the coming week and a half with Tom, and in the coming year with the Raiders. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. That was Raiders owner Mark Davis. Up next is the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so Robert, can you get Bill Vinovich to blow that whistle? That's the two-minute Hey, thanks, Bill. Yeah, thanks. Days later. Okay, we're going to go to the two-minute drill, and I have this week's question, so here goes, guys. Everyone's looking for the next Sean McVay. How come they're not looking for the next Bill Belichick? Because NFL teams thought they already found him, and Eric Mangini, Romeo Cornell, and Josh McDaniel all thought wrong. <laughs> Actually, Clark, because uh, thank God there's only one puss that sour. <laughs> Tom Brady says he always loved playing for one puss that sour. That'd be Bill. Why should we believe him? Because he has five rings in his hand. <laughs> because you believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Otherwise, don't, Clark. I believe in St. Nick. True or false? The NFL needs to add a video officiating team to every crew. False. The NFL needs to either eliminate the crews and let instant replay officiate the game, or eliminate replay and let the crews officiate the game. True. Eye in the sky. I like it. What's going on with Todd Gurley? Nothing that a 100-yard game wouldn't care. I'll tell you what's going on going wrong with Todd Gurley. 338 touches this season equals ground beef. So who's the fresher running back now? Todd Gurley or C.J. Anderson? Fresher, Anderson. Better, Gurley. C.J. Anderson touched more Big Macs this year than footballs. 72 touches. He's fresher than my teenage son. The Chiefs fired Bud Sutton, Bob Sutton. Why? Sh- who should replace him? Patrick Mahomes, because he's the one guy in the building who can fix everything. <laughs> I'll tell you who should replace him. Quintus Fabius Maximus, who stopped Hannibal, who had much larger troops and much better troops than he did in the Second Punic War. Go for Fabius Maximus. Thanks for that history lesson, Ron. Any advice for Bill Vinovich next time he visits New Orleans? Yes, sign into his hotel under the name Harry Connick Jr. Right. Stay out of Pascal's Manali. He may get some shrimp thrown at him. Any advice for Al Riveron next time he visits New Orleans? Sign in in his hotel under the name Archie Manning. <laughs> exactly. Use an alias, any alias. That's, the end of it. That's it for the first half of our show, but stay tuned. We have Lorenzo White, class of 2019, and our Oscar nominations coming up in the second half. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where we will be talking to 2019 College Hall of Fame inductee Lorenzo White and talking about the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2019 finalists. But first, as you know, guys, we often... Okay, usually uh, reserve this segment for persons we know who've passed away. And as we get older, the list seems to unfortunately get longer. But I've got something new for you today. Someone who's actually getting better as he gets older. Now, Ron, that sounds a little bit like you, but it's not. Yeah, stop if you've heard this before. Jim Kelly. 
Yep, he was declared cancer-free again last week after a clean MRI. God, what a story. I mean, this guy just refuses to give in to cancer, beating it for the third time in five years, and more power to him. I don't know where he's gets the strength. Guzman really don't, but uh, you know what? Here's to one tough Hall of Famer. Yeah, he was always a quarterback with a linebacker's mentality before, during, and after his career. I mean, he's a fighter. He's... But I don't know if you ever beat cancer. It's come back yeah. twice. Yep. Let's hope it doesn't come back a third time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's glad to have a. It's good to have a you know upbeat story in this segment for once, Clark. Uh, yeah, for once, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and Kelly, you know, he does keep beating it back and uh, taking it to the ground. You know, he's made more trips to cancer treatment than Super Bowls, and he went to a lot of yeah. Super Bowls, but uh, uh, nothing really could keep him down in either case. And I say, long live Jim Kelly. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, and I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. You know, when he received that Jimmy V award at last year's ESPYs, I thought they were trying to tell us something. And, and maybe they were. I mean, like Jim Valvano told everyone, never give up, never, ever give up. And Goose, Jim Kelly hasn't. Well, I wouldn't expect a guy who lost four consecutive Super Bowls to ever quit on anything. He kept coming back and coming back and coming back in football. And he keeps coming back, coming back, coming back in life. No, it's true, and it's true, and you know, and I think we shouldn't forget that this is a fight that the whole family's in. It's a testament to the toughness yep. of the entire Kelly clan, including his wife and right. kids. They've propped him up a number of times when when things look pretty bleak. So it's a great story for a, an entire family. That's why they call them all Kelly Tough. Well, anyway, here's to you, Jim, and to many, many more years and decades of cancer-free living. We're going to take a break. When we return, it's our Oscar nominations for 2019. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we get into a couple of this week's topics, I'd like to salute referees Walt Coleman and Pete Morelli. They're retiring after the season with both serving as co-referees for Sunday's Pro Bowl. I'm not sure really that's an honor, but they are. They're serving after long and, frankly, distinguished careers in this league with Coleman working 30 years and Pete Morelli working 22. And Goose Man, I know you chart these officials each year. What should people remember about them? Well, I certainly won't remember Coleman as fondly as you do, but then I had no rooting interest in the 2001 Raiders-Patriots playoff game when Coleman introduced America to the tuck rule. But over the years, Coleman and Morelli ranked in the bottom half of referees whose crews called penalties. They didn't try to steal the show from the players. That's the way it should be. Okay, one more thing that I didn't ask you about in the first hour and also deals with officiating. What do you guys think about this idea of making pass interference reviewable by replay? I mean, the league is going to study it apparently in the offseason. So, Ron, what do you think? Good God, no. Jeez, I mean, haven't they already screwed up enough calls with replay? You play interference Apparently calls. not. Yeah, you start playing interference calls over and over, and... Uh, and I don't mean to make light of this, but it'd be like the Rodney King tapes. You know, those attorneys played it over and over in slow motion in court and convinced people that the re- that he was actually trying to kick these police officers when the fact was the only reason his leg was more they kept hitting him in the ribs with a stick. <laughs> It'll be the same with this. I mean, they'll either be 
endless interference calls or never an interference call. I mean, it's just, God, don't do it. It's just Yeah, NFL pass coverage is so handsy these days, both yeah. by offensive and defensive players. There'll be upwards of 20 reviews, reviews per game. If you like a four-hour, four four-and-a-half-hour football game, yeah, then make exactly. pass interference a reviewable call. And while you're at it, if you're going to do that, make offensive holding a reviewable call. Ooh, then you have upwards of 30 reviews a game. That'll push the game back to about a five-hour contest. Thanks for straightening us out on that, Dr. Data. Anyway, on to the awards. On to the awards by popular demand. As you know, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences this week nominated its choices for the 2019 Oscars. And there were some surprises, like I guess Roma, I haven't seen it, which isn't in the theater, but actually is on Netflix. And there were some disappointments, like First Man, which I did see. I thought it was terrific, but was not, they say not, nominated for Best Picture. Anyway, if the Academy can make nominations... We figured, hey, I mean, so can we because, well, because we vote on awards, too. I mean, we vote on the annual Hall of Fame choices. We vote on all pro teams. We vote on the regular season awards like MVP and Coach of the Year. So why not the Oscars? Right, Ron? Why not? I mean, good question. Yeah, why not? And we have an answer. Yes, yes, we will. In fact, right now we will. So, Robert, if you can hand me the envelope for each award. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Guys, you get to nominate anyone or anything from films of the past years. That's the only ground rule here. Got it? Goose? Got it? Ron? Yep. Got it. Okay. So, first up, we have... Hang on, let me see what we got here. What is this? Oh, there it is. Oh, wait. Best performance by an actor in a leading role. Goose, we'll start with you. Patrick Mahomes for his starring role in The Heir Apparent. His MVP season this season will be the first of many... I'm going with the starring role of Down Judge Patrick Turner in Blind Spotting. That's the official who failed to see the obvious pass interference call in the NFC Championship game. Well, I'm going with a surprise here, guys. I'm going with Tom Brady in The Favorite because, well, because Tom Brady's my favorite, which puts me in a very long line here in New England, as you know, Ron. Oh, yeah. Very long line. Long line. Yeah. Okay, next up. All right, there. Uh, here it is. Okay. Best performance by an actress in a leading role. Ron Borges, who do you have? Sarah Thomas in Support the Girls for her role as the first female to officiate an NFL playoff game when she worked the Pat Chargers AFC uh, divisional round game this year as the down judge. By the way, they used to be the head linesman, but they decided to make the position uh, gender neutral. So it's now the down judge. I, have a, I, I also what vote for Sarah. Where do you go? I'll also vote for Sarah Thomas, but in another movie, The Invisible Woman, because she isn't the one who botched the rough in the passer call in Kansas City or missed the passing the first call in the New Orleans game. <laughs> what do you mean botched Two the rough in the passer call? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm going to take Saints owner Gail Benson in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which, of course, as you guys know, is the story of the league's only female owner demanding answers from a league and an officiating crew that cost her a trip to the Super Bowl and that won't respond. Okay, where do we go next? Oh, yeah, right here. Best documentary. Rick? I'm going to go with the little-known Chargers documentary of If a Tree Falls in the Forest, Does Anyone Hear It? Which documented <laughs> their move to Los Angeles and the lack of any impact in the nation's second-largest market. <laughs> uh, my, my vote goes to one of our visitors in this week's show, Mark Davis, starring in won't you be my neighbor as he searches for someone to invite him to be their neighbor in 2019 because right now the Raiders are officially homeless. <laughs> well, stuff to top that. I'm going with period, end of sentence, the story of a coin flip in Kansas City and how it ended the Chiefs season. All right. Uh, we're rolling now, guys. Uh, next up, 
Best original song, Ron. <laughs> the autumn wind. Uh, autumn no, wind. Uh, the place where lost things go, which tells us the Le'Veon Bell story of the 2018 season. <laughs> lost in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I'm going to go with the Westlake High School fight song in Austin, Texas, because that school has produced two Super Bowl MVPs, Drew Brees and Nick Foles, and they both quarterback teams to the NFC semis this season. Wow, nice. Well, I'm going to nominate when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings, which, of course, comes from the film documenting Tony Romo's rise from a pretty good Dallas quarterback to a Hall of Fame broadcaster. God, Ron, I swear. Next time I want to know where we're going with the show, I'm calling Tony. And finally, guys, best picture. What do you have, Goose Man? I'm going to go with As Good As It Gets, the soundtrack to the Rams season that gives them a fitting climax to the 2018 year. A revenge game against the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and this time without any New England cameras watching the Rams practice. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ron. Ron. There you go. Uh, my choice is, can you ever forgive me? A look at Antonio Brown's new upcoming discussions with Steeler owner Art Rooney Jr. <laughs> Sweet. Well, no surprise here again. I'm going with First Man. The pointed look into the future of the NFL as it celebrates its 200th anniversary in 2120. With the best player in the league, that'd be Patriots quarterback Tom Brady, who at the age of 142 not only refuses to quit, but refuses to let loose of the Lombardi Trophy. Okay, that's going to do it, guys. Thank you, gentlemen, and congratulations to our nominees. And now... Yeah, that's the signal that we're going to hear from another Oscar winner. That would be the star of the documentary feature, Minding the Gap, our own Rick Gosselin, a.k.a. Dr. Data, who fills in the gaps today with what, Guzman? Where are you? I'm not sure where you're going. What do you got? Well, last week, the fan base, the Los Angeles Rams, mounted a petition to have referee Bill Vinovich removed from the NFC Championship game because its team was 0-7 all-time in games that uh, Vinovich worked of the Rams. That petition garnered over 7,000 signatures but failed to get Vinovich removed. And it's a good thing because it's unlikely the Rams would have beaten the Saints in that NFC title game without the Vinovich crew. <laughs> well, don't look for the Rams to mount a similar petition to have referee John Perry removed from the Super Bowl. Since 2008, Perry has worked seven games involving the Rams, and the Rams have won them all, including two this season. Uh. The Rams prevailed at Detroit and in their home playoff game against the Cowboys. Perry worked one New England game this season, and the Patriots lost at Pittsburgh. Uh. The Patriots were assessed a season-high 14 penalties that day for 104 yards, one of only two 100-yard penalty games for the Patriots this season. Now, granted, Perry will not be working with his usual crew. In fact, he won't be working with any of the six officials with whom he spent the 2018 season. The NFL likes to give these playoff assignments to what the league labels its all-star crews. But those crews were certainly light a few stars last weekend. That said, the referees usually set the tone for his crew, and Perry will be the man in charge on Super Sunday. There's some good news, more good news for the Rams. They have been designated as the home team in the Super Bowl, and home teams have won 65% of the games worked by Perry over the last four seasons. So, Ron, let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Do you think Clark has started the petition yet to oh. get Perry removed from the Super Bowl? <laughs> I'm sure he has. Well, I'm going to go online and check right now, see if I can sign. I'm sure Clark has done it. <laughs> but i got a question for you, Gooseman. Yes, sir. Uh, is the idea of uh, these sort of all-star crews a bad one? Because uh, my thought is, shouldn't it actually be the crews that have actually been all-stars as a group during the season? Working yeah, I games? agree. That, that This was a terrible concept because if you work a crew for, for 15, 16 games in the course of the season, you know the strengths and the weaknesses of the guys you're working with. And you can compensate for the guys that, that are weaker. And when you bring six of the guys together 
for the referee, you have no idea what their strengths and weaknesses are. You don't know who you got to cover for. And I think there are a lot of guys could have used some covering last weekend. Hey, hey Goose, if the, the Patriots lose that game, will the headline be Pat's Perry lized by refs? <laughs> Anyway, thanks for ruining my day, Goose. Hey, by the way, congratulations to the winners of our Oscar nominations. Up next, it's a look at more winners, the Hall of Fame's class of 2019 finalists. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, you don't have to wait long to see on the TV or listen to your radio to know there's a government shutdown and maybe even know people affected by it. I know we do here in town. Uh, it's been going on for over a month, and so it's nothing new. But when people talk about how it's affected TSA employees... It makes me wonder, guys, what happens in Atlanta in a week? Because reports last week had the waits and security lines at the airport there up to three hours. And I know people out there say, okay, well, so what? Well, so Super Bowl 53 is in Atlanta, and that's a problem if nothing changes between now and then. I mean, you guys have seen what lines look like in airports the day after Super Bowls. We've been going for over 30 years. Um, You've seen it. Goose, can you imagine what's going to look like in Atlanta? Yeah, it'll look like LaGuardia every day of the week. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Without the attitude, I mean, maybe with the attitude, who knows? Ron, how about you? I'll tell you what it's going to look like if something doesn't change. Saigon, 1975. Yeah. Guys climbing over walls trying to get in the I want, plane. You know? I want the helicopter. I yeah, want to so, get on the helicopter. Oh, man, it's just going to be awful. <laughs> awful. Atlanta's awful well, to start off with. This will really be awful. Yeah, let's just hope that something gets resolved. For everyone's sake, I mean, everyone's sake. I'm not just talking about uh, the TSA employees. For everyone's sake, before then. Um, and here's hoping something else is resolved between now and the first week in February. That is uh, Tim Tebow's situation. He's engaged to a former Miss Universe. And I tell you what, I hope it works out. I hope he gets to the altar, and I hope they live happily ever after. Because the guy is so delighted, so ecstatic, he gave her... Ron, a 7.25 carat diamond solitaire ring valued at between six hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars The only question I got, Ron, is does that sound like something you bought your wife? Uh, no, it does not. Mm, not exactly. <laughs> if I had to do that to, to secure her as my wife, that would be the first sign not to do it. Uh, <laughs> one other thought that comes to mind that Tebow uh, uh, often talks about himself. What would Jesus say? I think he would say, you bought her a what? There's starving yeah, people right. in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I, I hope it rings. works out, as I said. Good luck, Tim Debo. I mean, really good luck. I like him. Oh, she has a I big really finger. She must have a big finger. That's a big ring. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, you'll find out if she's got a big finger. I'll tell you that. Uh, now, now, guys, let's move on to the matter at hand. And that's the Hall's Class of Fame, or the Class of, uh, class of Fame, the Class of Hall, the Hall of Fame's Class of 2019 finalists. Whom we're going to preview this in the next couple of weeks. Um, there are 15 modern era candidates, as you know, and I hope most of our listeners know, along with senior finalist Johnny Robinson and contributor candidates Pat Bolin and Gil Brandt. And I'd like to start with them first. Um, someone asked me today if there was a chance, Ron, that one of them doesn't make it. And I said, no. I mean, I said, no. I'm, you think Robinson, Bolin, and Brandt will all get, for lack of a better term, rubber stamp? Be- because I do. I, I do. And, and, Ron, I think they will because, A, they belong, and, and B, there's real or no real argument against them within that room that I can see. So let me ask you, was I wrong to say no? 
Uh, well, I hate to disagree with my friend from Dartmouth, uh, but I'm going to disagree with my friend from Marmoth, uh, uh on, on, on this level. I'm not high on owners uh, who weren't founders uh, of the league uh, or guys uh, who changed the game, as Jerry Jones did when he changed the business model, uh, uh, getting into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Pat Bowen bought a team that already had John O'Leary and took him damn near 25 years to figure out how to win a Super Bowl. So uh, I'll be interested to hear what exactly the case is uh, for him. Uh, but to me, owners who spend money in their team and players so they can win, that's all well and good, but that doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. So I'll be interested to hear the case for Pat Bowen. You know, we've elected the last 10 seniors we've nominated, so I like Rob's chances. We've elected five of the six contributors we've nominated, lone exception being Paul Tagaboo, and there's a reason he's been in the room before and was roundly voted down before. So I do like the chance of both Bowen and Brandt, who've never been in the room. Yeah, I, no, I agree with you, Goose. Um, I hope Ron's wrong, but I, I agree with you. I think I think they all, all three of them will get in. Um, anyway, let, let's move on to the modern year finalists, because I think um, that's what a lot of people would like to hear about. And I want to deal today with the long shots. Um, and the way I see it, you guys can correct me, but I have Isaac Bruce, Don Coriel, John Lynch, Steve Atwater, Tom Flores. Sorry, Mark Davis, Tom Flores. And maybe just maybe... Richard Seymour is the most likely guys not to make the first cut. And as I said, I hope I'm wrong. But uh, Coriel's been here before. He's been here five times, and he wasn't a finalist last year. Um, Bruce hasn't made it past the top ten the past two years, and he's been in the room, and Atwater's been a finalist only once. And Goose, to me, the X factors are Lynch and Flores. Now, I, I could see Flores sneaking into the top ten. And maybe John Lynch, too, because he's been there before. The thing about John Lynch is he went backward last year for the first time, and that's not a good sign. So what do you think about this group? Handicap these guys if you can for me. Well, let's cut to the chase. If we have three first ballot Hall of Famers, Reed, Gonzalez, and Bailey, that leaves the other 12 modern-era finalists fighting for two spots. I think the guy with the best chance is Edron James. He's the best running back, not in Canton, and has the stats. And we all know how the committee, committee has increasingly warmed to the sabermetrics of football. And I also think we're going to finally break the logjam in the offensive line this year. So whenever, everyone else, in my eyes, is long shot. And the longest shots are the two coaches. We all know when it comes time to vote for either player or coach, the player is going to win out 90 to 95% of the time. Until we move the coaches into the contributor category, coaches are not going to get a fair shake in the selection process. So I, I'd be surprised if... Uh, if uh, either Flores or Coriel gets beyond much 10. Uh, interesting. Uh, actually, of the guys you've mentioned, uh, uh, Clark, I think uh, I think Flores has uh, the best chance out of that uh, crew. I think uh, Don Coriel is, frankly, his DOA. He's had enough support, and he continues to have enough support to keep getting into the room, but not enough to get out. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, how can you put in a coach who never won anything and reject a coach who won two Super Bowls? I mean, you can reject them both if you want, but you can't. In my mind, how do you jump a guy with two Lombardi trophies uh, when you don't have any trophy? You don't even have a conference championship. So, uh, uh, you know, certainly he refined Gilman's passing system. We all know that. And he was an innovative guy. Uh, but they never turned into championships, uh, even when he had a Hall of Fame quarterback. So, uh, you know, I think the same, as you said, with, with John Lynch as well. I think he's appears to be going backwards a little bit. Maybe he'll rally, uh, but that's usually not a good sign. Hey, Ron, Ron, how about Ron, you, oh, Ron, yes. Ron Flores or Law? Law. Coach or player? Oh, Law. I, I always take the player. I'm like you. I always take a player over coach. Um, that's why, as you've suggested many times, Goose, I think you're right. The coaches uh, really should have their own category because it's it's uh, 
Uh, and, and, I, and I don't think they should be contributors. The coaches right. are coaches. Right. And then Ron, we can throw assistants in there. Yeah. What about the question you asked Mark Davis earlier? And that's the social aspect, the fact that he was the first Hispanic quarterback, the first Well, yeah, I'm, you guys know. Coach I'm, who won a Super Bowl. Right. You know, the first, yeah, the first you know, Hispanic. You guys know I'm big on that stuff. That's why I'm big on Duke Slater yeah. and, and uh, a few other guys. You know, if you were the first at something really significant, and certainly Tom Flores was, uh, the, the, that should be uh, something that opens the door to the Hall of Fame for you. But okay. as Goose right. said, it's just hard to take anybody over players because the game is right. about players. And we don't have a room okay. for enough players. Well, right. Let's talk about one of those players, and that's Ike Burrs. I mean, he was always the second receiver when Terrell Owens was in the room. And then last year he was the third because we had Terrell Owens and Randy Moss. Well, they're both gone, so now he's all alone. Goose, is he or could he be a wild card here? Well, yeah, he's a potential wild card because he plays a skill position, and this committee loves stats. There are more than twice as many wide receivers in the hall than defensive backs. But the key for a lot of these uh, 2019 finals is the first belt in Shrinies. If there are fewer than three, the door has been cracked for guys like Bruce and Law and Seymour. How about fewer than none? <laughs> I am weary of this whole first ballot Hall of Famer thing. Uh, having said that, look, I think Ed Reed is a first ballot Hall of Famer. The other two guys, they're not. Good players, Hall of Famers, but... Gosh, uh, it's gotten ridiculous uh, right. in my mind. You know, everybody's a first ballot Hall of Famer now. You're not, yeah, it's not right. good enough to just be a Hall of Famer. Like if you know, these guys treated like if you don't, if you're not a first ballot Hall of Famer, they take the sleeves off your jacket, just get like a gold vest. I mean, <laughs> but, but Ron, but Ron, the bar, the bar changed when Jason Taylor became a first ballot Hall of Famer. No, you're right. That made me go to the bar. Yeah, I had to go to the bar that night, and I haven't drank. I'm not either. saying he shouldn't should be a Hall of Famer, but first ballot, no, and he was. So the bar has changed. What, what about what do you think about Lynch? I mean, you, you got to feel for the guy. We talked about him here earlier, but for two years he just missed the final cut goose when he was a top ten candidate. Then he didn't make the first cut a year ago, which as I said is a bad sign. He's going the wrong direction. Right. If you were to advise the Hall of Fame selector presenting him, and that guy, of course, is Ira Kaufman, a good friend of ours from Tampa, what do you tell him to jumpstart John Lynch's candidacy? Oh, when I make presentations, I believe you need a hook, and it can't be statistical. And when I was presenting guys who were being passed over year after year, I felt you needed a new hook every year. Ira has to come up with a new hook. He also has to explain the lack of interceptions. He's on the ballot with Ed Reed, who has 64 career interceptions at safety. Lynch had only 26. And this committee wants stats, and interceptions are a stat for safeties. Yeah, I mean, Goose is right. Uh, when you're bringing a guy in there two, three, four, five. 50 times, uh, it does get difficult as a presenter to, to come up with something uh, that, that makes people go like, whoa. Uh, yeah, right. right. Or, or at least wakes them up. <laughs> right, right. right. And, and Ron, that, that's why, that's to me is always the dilemma. I mean, I've heard people say, what do you say when you present a guy time and time again and he's knocked down? It's a good question. But Lynn Swan got elected in his 14th time as a finalist. Carl Eller in his 13th. Paul Hornin in his 12th. So, Ron, I'll ask you this. How do you convince voters who didn't back your guy for years to support him now? Well, you know, in, in the case of Ty Law, for example, there's a side of me that wants to stand up this year and, and just say, what the hell's wrong with you people? And sit down, you know, but I, mean, <laughs> I don't think that's going to be all that effective. Um, yeah. So, you know, you got to try something. You know, either you're going to compare him to Hall of Fame guys or guys that are on the list this year uh, where there's a really good, solid comparison. If you remember, when I presented Andre Tippett, uh, I ultimately uh, compared him with uh, Lawrence Taylor. Not saying he was as good as Lawrence Taylor, but pointing out how close his stats were to Lawrence Taylor's. Right, and then right. my conclusion was, so either Lawrence Taylor is the only guy who should ever go in, 
well, you got to put it's time to put this guy in because he was pretty close in tackles and sacks and everything else. And I think it it worked, but it's it's hard. It's a tough road to hoe for uh, Ira Kaufman, our friend. Thanks, guys. Well, thanks. And, and Goose, one of these days, I'd like to know from you how we can fast track the Hall of Fame candidacies of. Well, Ron, me and our producer, Robert Harris, Jr. Give us a clue, would you please? Now we're going to hear from someone who's actually in the hall, and that would be College Football Hall of Fame 2019 inductee Lorenzo White. He's coming up next, right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we promised you Lorenzo White, and he's here with us right now. Lorenzo was an All-American running back at Michigan State and a Pro Bowl runner with the Houston Oilers. He became Michigan State's all-time leading rusher in the 1980s and recently was one of 13 players elected to the College Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2019. And for good reason. He rushed for 2,000 yards as a sophomore and 1,500 more yards as a senior, capping his career with a school record 23rd 100-yard rushing game in the Rose Bowl against Southern Cal. He then became a first-round draft pick of the Houston Oilers in 1988 and played eight NFL seasons, earning a trip to the Pro Bowl in 1992 with a 1,200-yard rushing season. And now, well, now he's with us to talk about reaching the College Football Hall of Fame. Lorenzo, first of all, congratulations. And second, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Lorenzo, you were on the ballot for nine years before your election to the College Football Hall. A couple of questions for you. First, were you aware of the College Hall selection process? Secondly, how did you find out about your your election? And thirdly, what was your reaction? Um, well, they called me like um, it would have been like I guess just before Christmas, and they called my uh, the sports guy at Michigan State and had him uh, call me to get the address. I mean, where I was because they had something to send to me. And when they, the sports, uh, when the sports people called me, they were like, um, I don't know what it is. They just wanted your address, but if it's what I think it is, um, it's going uh, to be a good surprise for you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the funny part about it was I left something at home. And when I came back, I seen this box sitting on my door. And then so I opened it, I opened the box. You know, kind of like forgot about what they had said. You know, I'm thinking it was going to come like the next week. It came like the next day. <laughs> it was like the next day. And so I opened the box and it says, congratulations, you're one of the distinct uh, members of such and such. And it has, you know, how many people, um, I mean, how many people, uh, how many colleges and what it's uh, like, how many people, um, that it was, I, I mean, that ha, ha, had been in and the ones, and the ones that um, didn't make it. And I was like, wow. Then I kept reading it. That's, that's when I said, said welcome to the um, 2019, um, uh, well, 2019 class of um, College Football Hall of Fame. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I was very, uh, very, you know, not, uh, you know, surprised then because, like you said, it's been nine years and what, this is 10 times? Yeah. <laughs> so it happens, and I'm thankful. Well, you know, uh, Lorenzo, one of the things that strikes me about your college career is I was a kid from South Florida, and I ended up in a snowball state like Michigan State. 
Uh, and that first year you were there, what was that like? Wow. Like, um, pretty much, you know, my mindset was I had um, dreams of becoming a professional football player. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, um, if I go play in the cold, at least I'll get used to it because you never know where you're going to go play. I mean, if I stayed in Florida the whole time, I mean, you know, they get, you know, they go to different places to play different teams in the cold as well. But what happened if I get picked to go pro- play professional football and it's in the, and it's in the cold Buffalo? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, so my thing was, you're going to get it now, you're going to get it later. So I figured I got it now, and then I got picked by the Oilers, so I was able to um, plan a warm climb in the pros. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, got, it, it, it definitely got me ready for the Pittsburghs and the Cleveland and the Cincinnati. <laughs> well, that was smart, Lorenzo. I mean, playing in East Lansing got you ready for uh, Houston? And he laughs about that. And then I say, okay, well, as we mentioned, Rich – I said, let me try this again. Okay, as, you, as we mentioned, Rick Goslin, who's with us uh, – is a Spartan, and you know that by now. And he tells me that Michigan State hadn't won a Big Ten championship in 20 years and hadn't won a pole bowl game in 31 years before accomplishing that double under Coach George Perlis in 1987. Now, you rushed for 16 touchdowns that year. How did Perlis turn the program around? Um, you know, when he came into when he came into recruitment, and he um, he was just truthful about you know, hey. Um, um, I see all the offers you got, you know, everybody wants you. Um, and, you know, your goals are important to me, you know, and, and what you want. And, you know, he was just just like more, was like straight up with, you know, with it. And once I got to um, got to go on a visit, so with the help from <laughs> one of my friends, you know, that in, the, in the league, he kind of helped me decide, too, to go to Michigan State. And that would be uh, Michael Irvin. Uh, I had Michael Irvin. I, I was like, oh, you know, Michael and us, we, me and him was like really, really close. And um, so I was like, man, we got to go on a uh, visit together. So the visit that we went was Michigan State. And uh, so we went there. And I mean, I was like, man, I, I kind of liked the place. I kind of like it was like everything that I wanted. You know, my whole thing was I wanted to go to a school where, you know, I I would be. I mean, the guy, you know, and everybody's chasing the records. That's what I wanted, you know. Um, you know, uh, I was, uh, you know, in the in the, in the the cloud, you know, hanging around, you know, like the Georgia, the Hershey Walkers and all that type of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of set my goals high, and so that was like the place that, you know, that had everything that I wanted. Well, you went to the right place because George Perlis coached at my high school in Detroit, and we knew him as a guy who loved to run a football. He opened one. He opened one city championship game by running the same play ten consecutive times, and it was a run. Now, in the Big Ten wow. victory over Indiana in '87, you carried the ball 56 times for 292 yards. After the game, Perlis was asked if he overworked you, and he said, "The ball wasn't heavy, and he wasn't tired." <laughs> so, what was your memory of that game? You know, um, my my uh, memory of that game when you just said that, you know, what coach does is he he calls timeout, he pulls me out out the game, and just to ask me uh, one question, 
this, and this was the question. Are you tired? Um, she said, uh, I said, no, I'm not tired. She said, you're a liar. Get your ass back out there. That <laughs> 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 was George. So, I, I, oh, I couldn't do that, but I mean, when I was out there, I mean, I was just laughing, like, who, who, who called Paramount just to, just to say that? And I'm like, all these people, all these 60 or 70,000 people wanting that he's telling me something really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, after this, you went to the Oilers, of course, and uh, much of a culture shock was it leaving a college offense, uh, you know, that really featured the run for an NFL offense that had all of Fame quarterback and Warren Moon in, in the run-and-shoot offense, which was completely different from what you were used to? Uh, yes, it was, but, you know, my running style my running style, my running style, fits that. And, you know, um, do I like running with the fullback in front of me and the tight end? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, when, when Coach Watt, it was an interesting thing, when Coach uh, Watt came to Michigan State my senior year, that's the first thing that he told when we sat down. When he came in, he was like, listen, I don't want to change anything you do, but I want to kind of get you ready for the, for the post set. So we're going to do some one back. And he was like, maybe we did it, but we did it with like um, two tight ends, uh, three tight ends, and sometimes a receiver. You know, so um, when I got there, you know, it was just we had like some outstanding backs. That did wonderful thing and that did some wonderful things in college. I mean, the way that I came up, that's how they was at their school. So you know, you got uh, Alonzo Hopkins, you got Mike Rosier, you got Alan Pinkett. Come on, that's you know. So my thing, I knew um, I just had to work hard, and that's what I did. Um, I didn't let any of that distract me. All I um, all I told myself is, if they was happy with what they had, then they wouldn't they, they wouldn't draft me. <laughs> so. But I didn't know it was going to take two years for me to get on the two years for me to get on the on field. <laughs> Lorenzo, we're nine and a half minutes into this interview. Are you tired yet? No, it's never, it's never tired. <laughs> so, give me, so give me the ball. <laughs> well, Ron mentioned Warren Moon. But he wasn't the only Hall of Famer you played with in Houston, of course. Those 1990s Oilers had arguably the greatest guard tandem in NFL history in Hall of Famers Bruce Matthews and Mike Munchak. How important is guard play in a successful running game? Oh, my God. Yes. Um, I just had to add one, one thing about this. I mean, the one person that you just named. When you can play every position and go to – the um, Pro Bowl at every position on the front line. That's saying something. I don't know too many people who did it. <laughs> and that's Bruce Matthews. Yeah. I mean, he went to the Pro Bowl at every position on the line. So, I mean, that's just letting you know what type of person that guy was. Now, when you, you, know, you talk about the guards, you know, uh, my running style is one that it helps those guys out. But they were like, those guys were so, you know, those guys were so skilled, you know, when we um, run it behind them. And, you know, I, I learned that, like, uh, my rookie year there. So once we got in, once I got in, um, you know, run, running behind them and seeing, you know, the things, the decisions, you know, and you're talking about these guys were already pro bowlers before I even got there. So just to, you know, to make things, you know, 
quite interesting. It was me. It was like an honor. It made things so so much easier for me to read. And I think that's why I lasted in the system uh, as long uh, longer than all the other backs. So, Lorenzo, what was the highlight of your career? The Indiana game, the Rose Bowl, the 156-yard day against the Giants, what? Uh, I'm going to still say that, um, get going in at that game against Indiana to put us in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> I mean, you know, college, you know, when you got a college town and everybody, you know, everybody's pulling for you, everybody's on the same page. And, you know, you can't go to the gas station pump gas because they don't want to hurt yourself. Like, come on, pumping gas, really? <laughs> so, so that was kind of, that, that, that leading up to that game that week was kind of interesting for me, and I'll never, ever forget that. No, imagine every, every time you think about it, you probably have to lay down for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was funny, you know, like you know, after that game and carrying the ball like that, and people were calling and they were like, "Are you okay?" I was like, uh, "Why? What happened?" It was like, uh, I mean, that's how everybody. That's all they kept talking about on TV was how many times you carried the ball. And like, I was like, um, "I'm okay." I said, um, "I might be a little winded, but don't tell Perlis that." <laughs> 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 now, when, when you look at today's football, the game's not played, you know, so much in the air at every level, high school, college, pros, the better your quarterback, uh, it seems, the better your chances of, uh, of winning. Um, when you look at the game, is there still a place in football for the elite running back? Yes, I mean, we just seen that happening um, this past weekend in the playoffs with the Rams. I mean, you know, you you got a, a um, all-pro running back. You know, who was banged up a little bit. I mean, he had a good game, and then he had a guy. He had a guy that was, you know, um, I can identify with what he was going through. You know, with people saying that you're done and you, you know, you can't uh, what you can't do. And he came out and showed him, hey, uh, how important he was and what he still could do. You know, and when you look at a running game like that, um, that running game, and it showed me anybody that run the ball like that, I'll show you. Um, a team that's going to going to take over and control. Uh, they're going to control their destiny. Lorenzo, thanks so much for joining us, and again, congratulations on reaching the College Football Hall of Fame. Thank you, thank you very much. That was former running back Lorenzo White. Next up, it's a two minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're close to the finish line, so let's see if Bill Vinovich himself can find that whistle again. Ah, uh, there it is. And not for a PI, but for the two-minute drill. So let's get started, guys. How soon before we hear ex-Rams complaining about Patriots spies at Super Bowl 36? The Patriots seem to wind up playing in all tainted Super Bowls, don't they? No. <laughs> we heard about that before they even qualified for the Super Bowl. Exactly. Who's the best forecaster? Jim Cantori, Nostradamus, or Tony Romo? Warren Buffett. <laughs> Second that emotion. <laughs> what are Tony Romo's chances of making the hall as a broadcaster? This coming Super Bowl will be, be one more that he's seen as a broadcaster than he saw as a player. Exactly. <laughs> a lot better than his chances as a quarterback. Better analyst, Tony Romo or Chris Collinsworth? Romo, because of what he says before the play, not after. Neither. Boom! John Madden, talk less and entertain more. <laughs> after what he did the Falcons two years ago, what kind of reception should Tom Brady expect in Atlanta? 
I don't know. What kind of reception did General Sherman get when he marched into Atlanta in 1864? <laughs> this guy's reading over my shoulder. That was the same thing I was going to He's killing me. I don't have any line. Back off, Goose. Get out of his way. <laughs> Will we ever see Andy Reid in the Super Bowl again? This chase will be the popular AFC pick in 2019. Not if he keeps putting Gronk in single coverage with a free release right at the end of the game like he did twice this season and got his little... You are right, you are. Boomer Sison calls Julian Edelman a Hall of Fame candidate. What do you call him? Sure, Kent State Hall of Fame candidate. I call him lucky he didn't play 20 years ago because he'd be calling him an ICU resident. Tom Brady hasn't been sacked in the playoffs. What are the chances the Rams get to him in Super Bowl 53? Better than if the game was played in Foxborough, where he was sacked only eight of his 21 times. I'd say pretty good, because the Rams have two big inside rushes. If you're Sean McVay, what do you do with Marcus Peters? Keep him away from Rob Gronkowski. (laughs) (laughs) I get rid of him right after the Super Bowl before you infect my entire team. Exactly. What can Aqib Tlaib tell the Rams about Tom Brady that they don't already know? Give me Kronk. <laughs> no one to leap? Go be good, man. Go be good. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Mark Davis, Mike Pereira, and Lorenzo White for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com or themaven.io slash talkoffame, or look for us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, you can find us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks again for listening.